Welcome to the Banyan Edge Podcast. Here's your host, Charles Sizemore. Welcome. If this is your first time on the Banyan Edge Podcast, it's good to have you. If you are a repeat guest, you probably know. We like to follow big trends before they become mainstream. We like to get in front of those. We like to be the first to see these these themes, the first to invest in them, the first to profit from them. And so today we're going to take some of these themes we've been covering for the last six months to a year now. And we're going to show how they're actually kind of reshaping the landscape of America, kind of small town by small town here. And to help me unpack all of that, I brought on our resident macro expert, Mr. Ian King. Charles, good to see you. How's it going? Going well, going well. So, Ian, you've been really ahead of this deglobalization trend. You were one of the first analysts I've seen to talk about how this big trend of the last 40 years, or really more, if you want to go back to really the end of World War II, mm-hmm. we had a one-way trend. And that trend was we were going from more kind of atomized local economies to this globalized, you know, big global economy, globalized global economy. It's a bit redundant, but that, that, that was the trend, you know, going from kind of, uh, you know, the world was getting flatter. And uh, you remember that book, The World Was Flat by, by Thomas Friedman. That, that was the trend of the last 40 years. And it was starting to break down kind of before the pandemic. And then the pandemic happened. And then that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And we've been in this, this phase of, of deglobalization ever since. And that has interesting implications. Because as those old trade links, I can't say dissolve, they're not, that seems a bit extreme, but as they are de-emphasized and new trade links are created, things are brought back home, it, it just, it creates new dynamics. Mm-hmm. So one of those was this, this boom in, I can't say across America, but certainly in assorted small towns in America, we are seeing the fruits of this. And I know you're going to have a lot to say about that. So uh, with that said, <laughs> run yeah. away. Oh, my thanks for having me on. I'm really excited about this, Charles. Um, and it's interesting you brought up the end of World War II because, you know, there the, between the Ford and the Marshall Plan, the U.S. became the manufacturing engine of the world way back in the 1950s. And then obviously with Bretton Woods, our dollar became basically we had dollar hegemony from then until now. Uh, we became the global reserve. Um, There was a bit of a change in the early 1980s as uh, the U.S. started allowing and cutting these trade deals, which would allow manufacturing to happen in other places overseas. And this was also strengthened throughout the 90s, you know, where you had NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which gave Mexico a lot more manufacturing capacity. Um, Throughout the, the big dynamic, though, is really like what has happened in China in the last 40 years. Okay, so since 1980. China, which once was a very rural place with a low economy, with most people living below the poverty line, uh, started to become the manufacturing engine of the world. And United States companies and European companies offshored production allowed things to be built in China. And this happened because, number one, uh, labor wages were cheap, right? And it's always been cheap to hire Chinese workers. And number two, you had a Chinese government that incentivized manufacturing at the expense of savers. And what I mean by that is that the the government, the central bank, keeps the rate that they pay savers low in order to borrow money cheaply to build more factories uh, and and manufacture things. And you know, it's basically a state directed, state sponsored uh, form of form of, of the economy. And 
there's been a change in the last couple of years. Number one, we started basically imposing tariffs on a lot of Chinese goods during the Trump administration. And so that made it more expensive for manufacturers in the United States to bring goods in from China. Um, number two, you've had the average Chinese workers' wages has gone up about tenfold in the last 20 years. So instead of paying somebody you know, under a dollar per hour, you're paying them an equivalent wage that's closer to what you would pay somebody in the United States. Um, and thirdly, and this is probably most importantly, um, we saw during COVID when supply chains shut down that this became a huge problem for the global economy and that we needed to have more domestic manufacturing in the United States. Okay, and I always think back about this, this story of the auto manufacturers in the United States that couldn't get chips for their cars. So they were buying washing machines in order to rip the actual semiconductors out to finish the manufacturing of their cars here in the United States. You can't really believe that that that's real. Like that just seems so like out there, but th that happened. Right, it seems completely preposterous. But, you know, and because of that, it led to this supply shock, which made inflation go up to 9% at one point. And, and that had a lot to do with why inflation was so high is because the supply chains were completely shut down around the world because of, you know, China was in complete lockdown for basically three years. You think we had a bad here in the US, like in China, it was like they were locking people in their apartments. In some cases, they were welding people in their apartments so that they, they couldn't get out during COVID. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it was a big wake up call. And to me, this is like a big change in the tide, right? The tide has been going out into China and other areas of production for the last 40 years. Now it's like the tide went slack during COVID and now it's starting to come back. And yeah. the way we see this, Charles, is if you look at, and I'm going to show everyone this chart, manufacturing construction spending in the United States um, is triple the level that it was during the 2010s. So during the 2010s, you had a very uh, a period of underinvestment in manufacturing in the United States. That has completely changed. And you know, the reasons for that are we've had the CHIPS Act, obviously, which you know of, uh, the the infrastructure law is another one, and the Inflation Reduction Act. And I don't want to get too much into the politics of this. You may disagree with the fiscal stimulus that's happening. Well, I mean, in the people States. may disagree, but numbers are numbers, and the numbers speak. Numbers are numbers. And look, here's the deal. Don't let your politics get in the way of making money. Like, I, I, for me, it's like, I don't care. Like maybe I don't agree with Biden or what the current government is doing, but there's an opportunity to make money here. So pay attention to that first and foremost. I mean, there are a lot of people who didn't agree with Trump was doing, but they were able to profit on the things that he was doing. And so this is what I'm trying to tell people right now. There's an opportunity here because construction spending has tripled over the prior levels. And we're seeing lots of small and mid cap companies that act as basically servicers to this industry um, and their futures are drastically improving basically overnight because of all the money the government is spending. Okay. So um, we've prepared a presentation. Let's, let's dig into that for a minute, but you, you bring up a good point. So when people hear about this, this boom in tech spending, you know, they immediately think, Oh, AI, uh, you know, chips, we're going to invest in chip makers. And there's nothing wrong with that. Of course, there's a lot of opportunity there. Mm -hmm. But what you're talking about is the boom in construction that will make all of that possible. So it's really almost more of a pick and shovel approach. So, you know, you're not necessarily, I mean, you, you are, you are, you are looking at the underlying tech, but in this particular angle, it's more, you know, Hey, you know, this chip maker, that chip maker could be the winner. That, that actually doesn't matter. We're, we're investing in the construction theme that's going to make it all possible. 
Absolutely. And I've always found that the pick and shovel approach is, is an easier way, right? I mean, you just think about what pick and shovel means. It means basically, you know, in the uh, mid 19th century, you had gold speculators that were moving to California, right? The, the, the 49ers, not, not the football team, but the actual yeah. 49ers, the football team was named after. Right. And you were better off being somebody who sold them pick and shovels because there was a boom in pick and shovels rather than somebody who, you know, risked their fortunes trying to find a gold nugget in the mountains, which may or may not have happened. Right. right. And so, you know, this is why I, I believe Levi Strauss amassed his fortune because he was selling picks and shovels and different types of clothing. That the, these... the biggest winner of the gold boom, the California gold rush was Levi Strauss I mean, right. I, I, to, to this day. <laughs> yeah. He was selling all the dry goods. So it didn't matter whether or not somebody found gold or not, they were buying their dry goods from him in order to go spec to go try to find gold. So um, I think that there's another gold pick and shovel opportunity here with a number of companies. I would also note that one thing that we're seeing in like the economy is that you know, we all know that mortgage rates are seven and a half percent, and you know the United States uh, new home sales are are slowing down, and 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 the economy, which we thought would have slowed a long time ago, but I looked at the data up until June, we hired one hundred ninety six thousand new construction workers because of this spending that's happening, um, and I think that uh, that is basically one area that's strong enough in the economy to kind of mitigate the other softness. Um, and, and one of the reasons why, you know, the economy has not gone into recession lately because of all this fiscal stimulus that's going into the construction sector. Um, and this is not like a one off one year thing. It's going to keep continuing this decade. I'm sure you've seen, you know, the $20 billion plant that Intel yeah. is building. How long does it take to build a plant like that? It's not like you throw it up in six months. Like, like that's something that is a decade long project. Right. It takes years. And then there are, there are other impacts of that, right? So, you know, you think about towns in the middle of nowhere in the country, which one we're going to highlight on our, our presentation tomorrow, one o'clock, Tuesday, one o'clock, uh, where you know, homes were selling for like $100,000. And now all of a sudden, like people are getting a million dollars for their house because they're building this factory basically in the middle of nowhere in the United States. Um, yeah. And 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 it's not just happening in this town, it's happening in different towns all across the country. And there are small and medium cap companies that are kind of under the radar that have traded for a very low valuation for decades. And then all of a sudden, they're seeing the multiples on the valuation increase because of the forecast for for what's happening, and and that's what I want to highlight for for viewers tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. So we're gonna put a link to that. The presentation is tomorrow. You said it's at one o'clock, one p.m. Eastern time. Yeah, one one p.m. Eastern. We'll put a link there. Uh, th th this is good stuff because this is really the culmination of a trend that you've been. I mean, you, when did you first? You wrote a piece that's still one of my favorite pieces that. Anyone at Banyan Hill has published in a long time about firing China. And I want to say you wrote that. That was close to a year ago when you wrote that. I and think it was, yeah, I think it was last fall. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I mean, I remember when, when you published that, I remember thinking at the time, we're going to come back to this again and again. And well, lo and behold, we have. <laughs> We've come yeah. back to that theme again and again because it's a powerful one. And this is a trend. Again, this isn't something that, that gets thrown up in six months, six weeks, whatever, to unwind, or not necessarily unwind, but just reorient the economy after 40 years of going one direction 
you, that that doesn't happen. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day. <laughs> right. You, you you don't reorder the, the global economy in a day like that. I mean, it, it's this is something that will that will last probably multiple decades at this point. And uh, think about the other implications. So we're going from a logistics system that's mostly shipping based, right? It's it's it was moving goods from you know across the Pacific. Well, if that's happening closer to home now, that's going to be more of a land-based distribution network. It's going to be more like trucks, possibly driverless trucks, which creates a whole nother, yeah, that, that's a whole nother way to, to play this trend. So there's all these kind of pick and shovel approaches here, um, any or all of which are going to be with us for a while. There's a really long runway. Right. And and let's also note how manufacturing has changed in the last 40 years. I mean, we didn't have automation uh, as much. I mean, you, you had some robots that were making things uh, 40 years ago, but you think about those old factories, you know, you got like the, 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 let's say they're making like, you know, soup, you know, you have like the cans coming down and it's filling it whatnot. But we're talking about like higher end products that can be made with robotics now. And I think that it comes at a really interesting time because you see how AI is changing the equation for things. And, and and I read recently how Google is like programming their robots with like their own AI. Uh, and, and you can make the case where you could have these factories that could produce the same amount of goods for a lot cheaper, right? Because instead of hiring so many people, you have to hire more robots. And, and, and we've had this discussion on some of our webinars about the idea of the creative destruction of capitalism, which Joseph Sumpeter came up with about almost 80 years ago now. Um, and this idea that robots will replace jobs, but in the long run, because we are improving the our productivity, we, we will be a more prosperous area, more prosperous world, more prosperous country uh, because of it. But there is going to be sort of a, 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 a change here where it's like the, the jobs that we took for granted are, are suddenly replaced and we need to retrain people. Um, and, but, you know, at, at the end of the day, the investors who invest in these disruptive trends are the ones who always make out at the expense of workers, right? I mean, so the best, the best uh, historical example is, is the industrial revolution. You know, the industrial revolution blew up the world economy as it was known at the time. Jobs that had existed for centuries, about millennia, disappeared. They were replaced by automation. They were replaced by the industrial process. Well, did everyone get poor and starve to death or did we regress to the caveman times? No. I mean, there was an adjustment and it was really rough during that adjustment, but Mm -hmm. we came out on the other side wealthier. And that's, and of course, some of the great fortunes that you still see today (laughs) were amassed during that, that industrial revolution. You know, these uh, family names you would still recognize they, they got their wealth in. So we're, we're going through a similar process today where, yeah, it is going to be disruptive. You know, if you're, I don't know, a truck driver and all of a sudden you're competing with an AI bot to, to drive the same truck, that's going to be very, very disruptive. Um, over the long term, it means you know, more production. It means we will all be wealthier. Uh, but if you're the actual investor, like we'll be wealthy in the sense that we have more productive economy, but the real wealth will be made by the people that invest in these technologies. Mm-hmm. And let's not forget how disruptive it's going to be for motorists, like driving down your local highway and looking over and there's nobody driving the truck. Right? <laughs> uh, it's a little disruptive uh, in my mind. But, you know, wh- yeah, one like thing I'll think say about myself is like an anti-Luddite. I mean, I'm, I'm not like I'm not afraid of tech. I, I like to think I embrace tech. Mm-hmm. If I see the truck with no driver, I probably will have a freak out moment. 
<laughs> well, one thing I'll say about the self-driving trucks is that it's actually an easier problem to solve than it is driving and navigating through like a suburban area, right? So going from point A to point B on a super highway is a lot easier for machine learning and artificial intelligence and self-driving cars than it is to go from you know driving through your local neighborhood. And if you have like a level two autonomous system, you know this because if you're on the highway, you press the button, you know, you can sit back for hours uh and the, and the car can drive itself but try doing that in like a neighborhood where you've got stop signs and street lights and you know little kids running in the middle of the street so it, it, i i see self-driving trucks the, being the, the, the day that a self-driving truck can navigate lima peru traffic will be the day <laughs> that uh i don't know what that, that'll that'll be that'll be a breakthrough day in technology yeah i mean that's why the us is probably going to surpass the rest of the world in manufacturing because we also will have you know we've got the largest end market here in the us we have the largest consumer base and you know we figure out the the distribution angle where it's shipping goods around the country cheaper than it is now with electric self-driving vehicles um you know it, it just changes the equation on the whole global supply chain so this is a really exciting development um i would say Probably in my career, there's been four or five big, like seminal moments uh, that I've seen that are trends that you can invest in that are going to last 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, this is one of them. I think we're just at the start of a manufacturing super cycle here in the United States. So I really want everybody to check out this presentation tomorrow, uh, Tuesday at one o'clock. And, and again, just check out the uh, sign up sheet that we will put in the email. Very good. Very good. So Ian, we're, we're kind of bumping up on our time, but uh, I will repeat what he said here. Uh, the, the presentation is tomorrow. We will put a link to it. This is this is a big deal. You know, the, these are trends that, as he said here, uh, the, the, they, we stand to benefit from them for decades into the future. So this is, this is the time to be familiarizing yourself with the material. Yep. So that presentation is tomorrow. They we're putting the link below. Um, yeah. Otherwise, I, I hope to see you there, Ian. Uh, I'm excited about it. Me too. All right. Thanks, Charles. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being on. And to our, to our viewers, thanks for joining us today. Please join us on the presentation tomorrow. And until then, go out and make yourself some money. <laughs>